News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer elsewhere in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Diane Morales, candidate for mayor. It's been another busy week in New York City. The uh, New York Stock Exchange did a whole op-ed about how, hey, maybe we'll just leave New York if you all try to uh, tax stock sales. (laughs) We will see. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, yeah, right. But unfortunately, we probably won't find out. We're going to find out how serious this new supermajority in Albany is and how big a hole we're in. Um, yeah. But right now, it's a lot of bluff shots both ways with we're going to tax you. We're all going to run away if we're taxed. We're going to see. Um, there's a lot of money missing and um, more missing money to come. Past that, the uh, the mayor finally, finally said that maybe the NYPD should not be doing press credentials. Uh, he said that right as there was a big city council hearing about how batshit crazy it is. Uh, that's the technical term that the NYPD is who does press credentials because nominally they involve stepping across police lines. Although as somebody who has one, I can assure you that the one thing has nothing to do with the other. And this has been a longstanding issue and one that gets worse every time there are big protests. So mm-hmm. over the summer, over Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, the NYPD doesn't really want to be doing this. Nobody else wants the police department deciding who is and is not a journalist. And it's just a mess of a system. Yeah, but I don't know if if the entertainment wing of the city should be the ones issuing it. I feel like there's some sort of compromise. I don't think it should be the NYPD either. But isn't there another agency or or wing of the bureaucratic melange that we can figure it out for journalists? they. I think the idea is because they're dealing with photographers and movie projects and stuff like that all the time, that they sort of are a natural nexus there. But it is is a little odd. My feeling is that that's the quick way to get this away from the, uh, the NYPD. God bless. And like the next mayor can sort things out from there. Uh, But yes, it definitely seems at least a little weird. And then the mayor's office jumped right on it and ordered an independent audit of New York City's private shelter providers after a blockbuster New York Times report in which 10 different women, many of them homeless, accused Victor Rivera, the longtime chief executive of the Bronx Housing Network, of uh, sexual assault and harassment. There's some remarkable quotes in that Times story Not least uh, the one about how, you know, the city just generally doesn't like to break contracts with homeless shelter providers, including when there's financial improprieties or other allegations of wrongdoing because there's a right to shelter here and because there's just a default to keeping the the system moving that I thought was uh, uh, pretty remarkable and that, that it took this level of horrific wrongdoing to get to any sort of uh, accountability or results. Um, you know, this is a $2 billion homeless shelter operation that the uh, city runs, and it's all right. contracted out to about 70 of these groups. Right. But I mean, I think that's part of the, the larger issue, Harry. It's like, well, one, on the, on the one hand, when it comes to sort of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, 
Sadly, it has to blow up before it gets attention. That's one. And then two, when we're thinking about sort of this conglomerate of organizations that get funding for homeless shelters, we know that there's so much waste. There's so much mismanagement that goes on. I don't really know, you know, and I haven't heard it from the mayoral candidates, but how do we even restructure how we view homelessness? I think the mayoral candidates right now, by and large, are talking about, you know, we've got to create housing and and sort of think more holistically about homelessness. But I think a real conversation is how do we restructure all the ways that we, quote unquote, deal with homelessness? Because it feels like money out the window time and time again, just bad behavior, mismanagement, and people who just don't understand how to put the pieces together. It seems like we're overpaying, you you know, to sort of have people staying in hotels. And it's like, well, we're paying all this money. Why can't we just get them into apartments? Like that's, I, I just, I know it's not that simplistic, but I do think that there's, there are ways where it's been done for so long a certain way. No one wants to pull the plug and say, this is fundamentally not working. And it's not helping families. So let's stop doing it. There's two big parts there that make that hard, I think. There's the right to shelter consent decree, which is going to turn 40 years old this year. And we're actually going to have a whole episode coming up about that's going to dig in much deeper on this set of questions. And I think that makes it challenging. And there's also, as uh, Julie Sandorf brought up uh, a couple months ago now on the podcast, this new phenomena of modern homelessness, which actually just precedes the right to shelter, but really begins in the, the 1970s. And we hadn't had, prior to that, since the 1930s of, of street homelessness that clearly has something to do with deinstitutionalization, with having – we're talking here largely about adult men as opposed to the, the family system, leaving people to sort of fend for themselves on the streets and then the police to deal with them as needed which has just been disastrous. I think has really been exposed by the pandemic and the shutdown and then Cuomo's decision to close the trains at night, which they keep running, by the way. The whole point of that is just to push the homeless people out of the system at night, which is made for a really rough, strange winter, along with this very scary upshoot and people getting shoved and randomly attacked in this train system that hardly anyone is using. And by the way, a bunch more people are about to be as junior high school comes back starting in a couple of weeks, uh, the mayor has now announced. But there's a lot to dig into there. But we're going to save some of that for future episodes. And um, I would like to bring on Diane Morales, who before running for mayor has had extensive experience as a um, nonprofit executive in New York and dealing with some of these issues. Right. And before we talk to her, Harry, um, we're going – I'll be joining Diane Morales and – the rest of the mayoral candidates, by and large, almost all of them will be there. Um, the good CVH, ones. <laughs> the, the big kids table, as, as we call it. Uh, CVH, uh, Community Voices Heard, is sponsoring a mayoral town hall uh, focusing on Black women's issues and Black women in New York. So if you go to cvhpower.org, you'll be able to find out all the details. But it's February 16th. That's Tuesday, February 16th at 615. Uh, and... Stringer, Wiley, Morales, Donovan, Adams, and I believe McGuire are all confirmed uh, to join uh, to discuss Black women's issues uh, for Community Voices Heard Power. So if you go to their website, cbhpower.org, you can find out more information for the event on Tuesday, February 16th at 6.15 p.m. Nice. And with that, 
let's bring in Diane. Morales, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I'm excited. Yes. So Harry and I have been following this race pretty closely. Uh, There's some data that came out today sort of looking at where the candidates fall. You've got about 2%, not really a lot of name recognition. And when you first announced, you were one of the first to announce, if not the first to announce, there's a large conversation about you just kind of not getting any attention from mainstream media. There was a conversation as to, you know, what happens when a woman of color enters into a race before others and is largely ignored by sort of mainstream media. And so that clearly isn't the case. You're, you're in the forums. I would, I would argue at the big kids table, uh, since there are what, 20 some odd people who are running. Um, and so where do you see your chances? Uh, we know we have a truncated uh, mayoral season. We are having our elections in June and not September. So you've got a limited amount of time to introduce yourself to New Yorkers uh, mm-hmm. to make the case you know, I think you've made the case to the press that you should be covered. So that's mm-hmm. one box checked. Yeah. But the data is coming out that says, OK, you're at 2 percent. Some folks who have more name recognition from their national profiles have much higher double digit uh, percentages. But how are you going to make this case in a short period of time that you should be the next mayor of New York City? Sure. I mean, that's a really good question. And I think Anything is fair game because I think that things are really actually just starting to get started. And for for us in particular, I know that after we hit matching in March um, and we start to get those matching dollars, um, we're really going to ramp up in the months before leading up to the primary. And I think that that is where we're going to, you know, the name recognition and getting out there, I think, will really be a critical part for us. I, I think you know, to your point, we've spent some time, um, you know, in quarantine and dealing with the press and kind of raising raising my profile, the campaign's profile among what I what I endearingly call the chattering class. But, you know, where I really want to be and where, um, you know, what I'm really targeting is the community. And, and you know, we anticipate doing that um, a, a lot heavier um, once the weather gets a little warmer and we're able to be outside more um, in the community. And also, like like I said, when we get the matching funds and are able to sort of tap into a, a lot of other modes of outreach. Does uh, COVID play into that at all? With, with just being able to get out there and be around people and the, the state of the vaccine and all that? So, you know, I, I was actually just talking to somebody about this um, this morning. We have been super conscious and super cautious about doing anything in person Um because of that, I feel such an intense sense of responsibility for um, the people that I'm running to serve and the people on this campaign that are volunteering in particular, because we are a largely volunteer driven campaign. I would venture to guess that we're probably the only campaign of, as Christina referenced, the big kids table that has not done an in-person fundraising event since March 12th, 2020. And, and so, you know, when I think about it that way and I think about what we managed to accomplish despite not having done an in-person fundraising event um, for almost a year, I think it's pretty extraordinary. Um, so, yes, we're going to, you know, take COVID into consideration. I think we've been hyper taking it into consideration. But we also recognize that the warmer weather, you know, being outside, we know that that uh, decreases transmission significantly and, and being socially distant and all of that and taking all the precautions that we need to take. I think it's it's going to be time for us to, to get out there and, and we're excited to do that. So you referenced the community a few times. How would you define the community? And with ranked choice voting, what are the communities that you're targeting? Sure. Um 
So, you know, like the broad umbrella for me when I talk about the community is like all of the folks in, in the city who have historically felt unrepresented or been underrepresented um, in city leadership and government. Um, it's, you know, low income black and brown folks. It's it's black women. Um, it's single heads of households. Um, it's the immigrant population. Um, it's it's the middle class, you know, the, the working class and the LGBTQ IA plus population. It's the folks who have felt marginalized and who have felt um, forgotten in particular, just in general. But like in particular, I think that all of that has been exacerbated over the past year. Um, and we see that reflected in our, our donors and who our donor base is. Um, you know, we have 30 percent of our donors are, are unemployed. And to me, that's like a really powerful. It's a disturbing and, and you know, and inspiring thing and also just a really powerful thing in terms of how the campaign's message is resonating with people who are struggling and giving folks some sense of hope. So that's that's where I feel like we're really focused on and, and targeting that group and trying to mobilize that group and kind of maintain the, the surge of the movement that started in 2020 in reaction to the multiple crises that um, were exacerbated as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we know that there's the campaign phase and then there's the governance phase. And so you can't mm-hmm. get to the governance phase if you can't get past the campaigning phase. How yeah. far away are you from the matching funds and sort of what neighborhoods realistically do you see as, as your base moving into the election? So we're less than $50,000 away from the matching. And given that we raised 60000 in the first 10 days of January, we're not really concerned about that at this point. Um, I mean, we're going to keep doing it, right? To, uh, we we want to exceed it, obviously. And, you know, in ter- it's been interesting in terms of um, neighborhoods. Um, the Bronx has been a big representation. We, you know, we did a heat map of, of donors. Um, there are parts of Queens, Brooklyn, and Upper Manhattan, actually. Um, so, you know, it, it, when you think about that and you overlay kind of the demographics of some of those communities, I think it is consistent with the the audience that I am thinking about or envisioning in my head when I think about who it is that I'm um, that I want to elevate, whose voices I want to elevate in this in this campaign and in um, in my administration. Mm. And so, and we'll get to the administration in a, in a second. But I wanted to just quickly go through. Um, I was looking at your website and the platforms that you have going on, mm-hmm. and I was hoping that you could sort of walk some of our listeners through some of these. So the first one is free CUNY. Yeah. How would that work, knowing what we know about public education and the the financial constraints they're in, especially during COVID? Yeah. I mean, I think think we really need to work towards creating a a free K through 16 system um, that would be seamless for all of our students and accessible to, you know, adult learners who want to go back to school. You know, I talked about this a little bit the other night. There was an Albany, like the Albany Agenda Forum. And, I, you know, I think that that is something that we need to we need to take to Albany. Uh, but I also think that there are things that we could do in the city in terms of how we invest and prioritize our budget um, and what it is that we focus on. Um, I think we need to do that. I think we should. There's a lot about education that I think is failing the, the majority of our students. I think we should be really creating pathways to our young people to careers. And I think CUNY is a critical way to do that. Um, but we should start much earlier than CUNY. We should be, you know, providing education to our young people about career options. We should be using the city as a classroom and incorporating all sorts of businesses and um, arts and cultural institutions into the classroom, actually into education. 
So as mayor, how do you do that? Like, A, how do you make CUNY free? And B, how do you sort of make this K through 16 pipeline work? In a where's the translation? Where's the money come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of things, right? Um, I think um, really looking at the city budget initially and, and seeing how we can start off, right? What we can start with from that perspective in terms of you know reallocating dollars. That, that that's a big thing I talk about all the time. I think there's a lot of waste in the city budget right now. As much as we there's talk about austerity and the we know that the budget's going to look different next year than it did two years ago. Um, the reality of it is that there's you, you know there's some agencies like the New York City Police Department that are bloated. And there's some that um, are sitting on vacant personnel lines that have been vacant for years and, you know, keep that money tied up in that agency because that line exists, right? So we need to sort of go through this inventory and this audit of our dollars. And I would want to do that first to see where we could start in terms of the um, shifting the investments into CUNY at the same time as advancing an agenda on the Albany front in terms of trying to work with the, you know, the newly elected supermajority to try to see what additional funding we could get from there. That's definitely going to be like a gradual process. It's not going to be one of the things that I can do in my first 100 days, but I think it's a worthwhile goal, particularly when we're talking about the need for economic recovery and how it is that we're going to have to train people for the kinds of jobs that I think we should be generating moving forward after COVID. So... With the $3 billion from the NYPD, which is a lot of money, for me at least, but but incredibly, you know, a, a fraction of the budget and some of these big ambitions. I have a couple of questions. Um, yeah. Do you have any concerns about public safety if that happens? And as we've had this increase in shootings and, and a narrative recently or a series of, of incidents with mentally ill people on the trains and shovings yeah. and questions about whether the police should be involved uh, about that size of a cut? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think that policing equals public safety. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, for, for a really long time, we have been destabilizing communities by defunding housing, defunding education, defunding healthcare. And I think that those, in fact, are the things that lead to unsafe communities. And so, you know, if we want to if we want to create safe communities, we need to provide our communities with the things that people need to be able to live safely and live in dignity. Um, police don't, I mean, we, what we know is that police don't prevent crime. They, they respond to what is supposedly crime. And that even then a large portion of the calls that they're responding to are not in fact crimes in progress. There are, there are social issues, there are homelessness, you know, mental health and substance abuse and other things. And the last thing I think we need is, is a man with a gun responding to a woman who is having a mental health crisis. And so, you know, aside from calling for the, you know, for us to divest from policing and invest in community resources, I've also called for the creation of a community first responders department, right? That would be staffed by people who are trained and skilled um, to intervene in those situations, to deescalate, and then also work as part of a larger ecosystem of services and, and human, you know, human service providers to connect people with what they actually need to stabilize and, and be safe, be truly safe. Just one, one more question there. So, so the council agrees. You are mayor. It's 2022. Things are just rolling. So you've <laughs> cut $3 billion. There's an operating budget of, what, a little less than $2 billion left for the NYPD. You're appointing a commissioner, maybe now with the consent of the city council, which they've just proposed. What, what are you telling that person? What sort of person are you bringing in? And what are the three things you're asking them to prioritize with that vast swath of uh, money and uh, manpower that's left? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I am um, I am asking them to really prioritize um, safety, right? And that means that police are not entering situations guns ablazing. I am asking that, you know, I, I, I needing to make sure that whoever it is that's coming in in that role um, is aligned with and buys into um, my sort of value system and beliefs about what it is, in fact, that in fact makes communities safer. Um, right. if, if that's not policing, what does a police commissioner do then in that role and with these, you know, 34,000 workers? I do recognize that there are, you know, violent situations and, and, and things like that that require a different kind of intervention, right? Um, you know, a, a woman in a sort of domestic violence situation or a woman who's being sexually assaulted, there's a different kind of intervention that is is required there. I'm not sure that it always has to be um, shoot first, ask questions later. Um, I, I think that there are ways to intervene in those situations that do the least amount of harm um, and, and don't start off by taking human life. And so I think that orientation is something that's really important to me because we, you know, I mean, we just know how disproportionately black and brown communities are being impacted and hurt by this. And we also know that culture change, um, no matter the size of the department, culture change is not going to happen overnight, although that could be the goal and should be the goal. So I had a quick question because you talked a lot about mental health. What yeah. would you do with Thrive NYC? Um, I, I, so I would take those dollars. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't have a poker face. I'm working on it. Um, I would take those dollars and invest them differently. I mean, I think there's some, there is some benefit to sort of the first aid, you know, the mental health first aid um, training that um, a lot of the human service providers were subjected to including my, my organization at the time. But I really think that we need to expand um, not just the number of folks that are available to provide mental health support, but the, what that looks like, the types of supports, right? Um, there's, a, there's a lot to be said for, for peer-based models, peer-led models, um, and expanding that, you know, people from the community that look like people from the community that are linguistically and culturally aligned with people from the community and have some training and skills, right? Because we're also talking about providing we can do this in a way that actually expands mental health services and supports and access to those things while also creating pathways to jobs for people. And so, you know, we could actually train people from the communities to serve as peer mental health supports, running groups and doing things like that and interventions at, at, at the community level. Um, we could expand resources. I'm a, I'm a sort of one of the other things I, I am advocating for is um, expanding community integrated health clinics so that things are available to people locally, um, that we're also moving to the preventative side as opposed to the crisis reaction side um, and having things that people, you know, are familiar with in their community that's staffed with people that they're familiar with from the community. So that I think is a critical piece. Um, and then I think, you know, all of the community-based institutions, organizations, human service providers, giving them resources to actually have staff that have some training or perhaps or even mental health um, specialists, whether that be social workers or, or counselors who can provide group counseling, group work, individual stuff. We, we, we don't have enough mental health providers in the city, period. And right. we don't have them that, in, you know, that are, um, again, linguistically and, and culturally appropriate to the people that uh, – to the vast majority of people that need those services. And I think that's that needs to be the focus. So can you translate, because you mentioned some of the work that you did previously. 
before you started running. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what you did and how that foundation translates to a skill set that you would need as mayor of New York City? Obviously, you'll you'll highlight some of the foundation, but then what are some of the gaps? What are some of the blinders where you're going to need to rely on other folks to help yeah. you have a 360 view of the city? Yeah. I So I've spent my entire career actually directly doing work to help improve people's quality of life and ability to live in dignity. And I've done that in a variety of different ways. There's two sort of critical pathways that I think of as contributing to that. One is education and the other is careers, right? Things that provide for economic stability. And so I have developed, you know, education programs. I was one of the co-founders of what is now a 27-year-old national organization that did both, actually, career and education. Um, On the education side, it built literacy skills in early childhood programs. We partnered with Head Start programs to do that. On the career side, we were recruiting and training college students um, and exposing them to to the fields of education um, and having them provide the services in the early um, childhood programs to help with the literacy development. And at the same time, those young people were were obtaining their CDA, their Child Development Associate credential. That kind of thing, that kind of bringing together different stakeholders and tying together different sectors to create a, a solution to something while also having kind of like a double impact Um, is a lot of what I've done. More recently, I, in the South Bronx, created a career training program in healthcare in partnership with Montefiore Medical Center, the largest employer in the Bronx, and Hostos Community College to provide training to un- and underemployed residents that gave them the skills that they needed to, at the end of training, be able to enter the healthcare field and enter with a career pathway. And they also had the opportunity to earn credentials or go into a credit-bearing program at Hostos. Um, and when they when they got employed at Montefiore, they be- became union members of 1199, right? So, you know, I've been doing that work, the work that is transformative, that is life-changing for people. Um, and that's incredible, but I've also, in doing that work, seen all the barriers, the structural barriers and challenges that people have to overcome in order to have that access. Um, so that's what I think I bring to the table. And I don't think there's anybody in this race that can say the same in terms of really having had that front row seat to doing things and coming up with solutions that directly transform people's lives while being able to see and name the barriers and the obstacles. Um, and that's what I bring. And I think at a citywide level, um, it can be transformative for the city and for all of the New Yorkers that I'm seeking specifically to target and elevate. So where do you think your blind spots would exist and how would you staff to make sure that? Yeah. I mean, you, I, I think you know what you don't know. Right. Exactly. I, what you don't I think know. The, the blind spots are, are all of the sort of political machinations that are deeply embedded and rooted in how the city operates. Um, and I think that, you know, having folks that know that, right, and can tell me um, what those things are um, and how things have run um, is the thing that's going to enable me to make informed decisions about the things I want to take on um, and and challenge and undo, right? Because I think one of the things we know is is that the the way the city government has operated has been, um, you know, 
bureaucratic, not necessarily effective, um, and certainly um, not centering those that need the most help. So I think, you know, having having some folks around me who have that lens and can sort of point out the minefields um, and so I can make a decision whether I'm going to walk across it or not um, will be really helpful. So a general question looking at your website and then a specific one. But uh, right now, when, when I go to your platform, there are a bunch of big proposals that yep. are in all caps. And that's what's there. I've actually heard you elaborate on a lot of them in various forms and elsewhere. But I'm just curious what, what your time frame is as, as we're yeah. getting forward for rolling those out in more detail. Yeah. So we were just talking about this that this morning because we just did a, ro- a rebrand. We just rolled out a rebrand um, last week. That's what you're seeing. And what you're seeing is kind of like the shell of that website. Um, so interestingly enough, while visually this uh, brand is is – much more lively and beautiful than the other one. It actually has less substance on the website right now, I think. Um, so we're we're both translating um, some of the things that were in the previous website, but we're also adding to it because one of the things that um, has also been a, a core part of the foundation of my, my sort of campaign has been the idea that we're we're co-creating these platforms, these policy issues and solutions with folks from the ground who have been doing the work. You know, I I really am a strong believer that the people that are closest to the challenges are closest to the solutions. And so I am not presenting myself as like, you know, the hero or the savior who's coming in from on high to tell communities what they need or to fix things for communities. Um, What I am saying is that I am committed to actually genuinely and authentically partnering with people who have been advocating and and doing the work on the ground with communities for, for a long, long time and sort of forwarding their agenda and and that work as long as it's in alignment with my values. So so we're going through another iteration. Your your logo is so gorgeous. Who designed it? <laughs> Jar Fong. Yay! I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, she's a a young woman um, powerhouse. Really, just just so incredibly talented. And I'm excited that you asked me that question and I got to say her name, Jar Fong. I will say this really quickly, Harry. It it reminds me a little bit of Obama. <laughs> For those of you who listened to our, our podcast episode last week or two weeks ago, you'll get the inside joke of Obama. Obama, Obama, Obama. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do like the sunshine. Uh, and Thank sort of you. Looking to a new day. Sorry, Harry. Thank go ahead. You. So I did want to ask you quickly, you've been a public school mom. You prioritize integrating our schools. That's been a priority of this administration and the the current chancellor in particular. And and I think there's a consensus that they've largely failed. So I'm hoping you could talk for a minute about why they failed, why you would succeed as mayor in doing that, and where the fundamental problem is in our persistently segregated system, like where that reform needs to begin. Yeah. Um, So I'll just say, you know, I've been a public school mom, I'm a public school graduate, and I was also a public school teacher. And so um, I've sort of seen it from all perspectives. Um, You know, here's at the core of my response to you is that um, when I become mayor, I will I will have become mayor because of the will of the people. You know, uh, I am not um, naive about kind of like the movement that it that it's going to take to get me elected. And so it's not like um, I expect that I'm going to come into office and then I'm going to be left on my own to execute the agenda. 
the idea is actually that I'm going to bring the people with me in executing the agenda. And I think that means having a certain amount of, of like political courage that has not been seen, I don't think, in, in this administration particularly. Um, but, but my political courage would be powered by the people and the support of, of the people to sort of execute on the agenda that they elect me on. And in terms of how we need to start that, we, you know, we just we need to be unapologetic about removing barriers to access, whether that's, you know, where we're talking about the screening or um, the these sort of like false lines that get drawn for districts and the weirdly shaped district lines that get drawn that end up, interestingly enough, a lot of times um, reflecting, you know, socioeconomic differences as well. Um, we need to move away from those things. We need to also um, look towards ensuring a, a different type of equitable funding in our schools and working to really make sure. So I, I want to say this, actually, it's it's I think desegregation is important because historically we know that uh, the resources follow the white students. That being said, what's most important is ensuring that we're creating quality schools in every community regardless. Right. So, I, you know, for me, it's not desegregation no matter what, or desegregation, even if the schools in my community stay low performing. Um, it's really about what that means in terms of ensuring access to resources. Although we do know that classrooms that are integrated actually benefit everybody. It's not just about dollars. There's a social, emotional, and psychological learning that everyone benefits from um, in terms of being in an integrated space. And I think given, this, give, I'm, I'm sorry. Is part of this also desegregating and redistributing the workforce and teachers in particular? When you have a mostly minority system with mostly yeah. uh, white teachers, and, and where which schools teachers are in, as an additional layer of, uh, of yeah. segregation there. I, I think for me, it's more so in diversifying the workforce. Um, I think we need to increase access to the teacher pipeline, you know, we need to come up with all kinds of innovative ways to provide training and a pipeline for people that are reflective of the students in the Department of Education in the public school system um, and incentivizing people to do that. Because right now it's it's so hard. I, mean, I can tell you as someone who taught at the school where I went to kindergarten, it was really hard and not because it, it wasn't because of my students. I mean, my students were the best and were incredible and extraordinary. Uh, I didn't have the support that I needed. I didn't have the training that I needed. And quite frankly, the um, the administration didn't really care about our kids. And I say our kids, they, my kids were all black and brown um, and the administration was not. They did not care about my kids. On that disheartening note, Right. Sorry. <laughs> we should go to our lightning round. And and thank you again for uh, for coming on and uh, taking the time. It's uh, the punishment each of you has to pay who wants to serve New York City is you must do um, at least six forums, two podcasts a day, I believe, by law. Yeah. Yeah, you got that right. It's exhausting. So lightning round. Chrissy, you want to do we'll, – we'll go back and forth here, zoom right. through. Should undocumented people be able to vote in New York City? Yes. Do you have an IDNYC card? I don't. Should no New has. York City <laughs> – you're, you're, you're with the, the full field so far. Um, should New York <laughs> City run the MTA? Only if we also get the money. Okay. 
if Kendra's law is over-applied, under-applied, or proper... Is Kendra's law over-applied, under-applied, or properly applied? What's Kendra's law? Should subways and buses be free? Yes, but buses should absolutely be free. We can control that right now. Um, the MTA, I'd like to move towards that once we get control and the money. As and mayor, these last three are all, okay. yeah, as mayor. Right. So Sorry. as mayor, would you make every meeting on your daily calendar immediately public? Yes. Would you continue to release transcripts of your public appearances? Sure. And as mayor, how many parking placards would your administration issue? <laughs> um, as few as possible. Okay. All righty. Last one. I, I just popped in my head, and everyone's going to get this now. Is which uh, which member of the de Blasio administration has impressed you the most with their approach? Uh, uh, wow. Um, I mean, Oxidis Barbo. I I thought um, Oxidis Barbo. Thank you again for uh, joining us and taking the time. And we hope you'll have you back on and uh, wish you well on the trip. Thank you. Thank you both so much. It was good to, good to see you both and get to have the chance to, to talk. Yes. And I'll see you next Tuesday evening, February 16th, for our listeners out there for the CVH Mayoral Forum, where we'll discuss issues specifically uh, targeting Black women. So I'll be moderating that panel discussion. So fascinating. Yay, I'm looking forward to that. I believe it's six, maybe seven of you and your colleagues together. Great. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. All right. Thank you for joining us. That was Diane Morales, candidate for New York City's 110th mayor. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Diane Morales, candidate for New York City mayor. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>